We're starting a new series of conversations today, and thank you so much for being here. I am convinced that you're not here by accident, and I want to tell you, not because I'm spiritual, but because Diane and I went to a wedding yesterday in Roanoke for one of our elders, Tim Eagle. His daughter got married, and we had a lot of time in the car, so we have prayed for you, folks that would be here today, some of you by name. This series of conversations, we're calling it This Is Us. It's, yeah, we're stealing the look and the feel of that television show that many of you are obsessed with, because uh, we're going to be talking about our key relationships. We're going to begin the first two weeks, we're going to talk about marriage, and then we're going to talk about parenting, and then we're going to talk about singleness, and I want you to know all of this is for all of us. Uh, there will be principles, there'll be application for those of us who are at the end of our lives or the last third of our lives. There'll, there'll be application for those of us who are single. There will be plenty of application for those of you who are in here who are teenagers. So I want you to listen up because all of this may apply to you one day, it may not. If you are uh, without children, you'll learn some things about relationship, we hope, but also you'll learn ways to effectively pray for your childhood friends. And uh, for those of you who are single again, you don't know what God has for you. So let's dive in and pay attention for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to begin this morning by reading you from a blog post that I read a few years ago. We've been together for 15 years and we have two kids. We've been in couples therapy enough different times for me to know that I hate being in couples therapy with him because he never changes. It's always been more productive for me to go to therapy alone where at least I can get things done. But now we are desperate, so I've capitulated. We park the car, we walk into the building with a couple's therapist. I remember one couple's therapist telling us that we're in good shape because we drove there together. Today I know that we would have driven in separate cars if we had two cars. I delegated finding a therapist to my husband after all. My first book just came out and I blog almost every day. I'm busy. I know my penchant for delegating is part of the problem, but I thought this would be one last hurrah. We get to the office and the sign on the door says, Divorce Law Offices. And there's a list of people with ESQs at the end of their name. I say, we're going to a divorce lawyer? I don't want a divorce. He says, it's Wisconsin. It's not like New York City where there are skyscrapers devoted to therapist's office. I took what I could get. We see a mediator. I start talking. I tell him we're not there to get a divorce. We're, we're there to keep our marriage together. Is there someone else we can see? My husband says, he's thinking we might be there to get a divorce. I see we are a parody of a couple who cannot communicate. When I was doing research for a column about divorce law, I talked with a lot of divorce lawyers, and each one said that so many divorces could be avoided if the people would talk. One attorney told me he helps one couple a month get back together, and that's his favorite part of his job. I tell myself, based on this, that divorce lawyers are good at keeping marriages together because they see so many marriages fall apart. We talk about our marriage. I think things are difficult because my husband gave up working to take care of our kids and it didn't work out for him. My husband thinks things got bad because taking care of our son who has autism is extremely difficult and we take it out on each other so that we don't have to take it out on him. There's truth to what my husband says. 80% of parents who have a child with autism get a divorce. But I don't want to blame my failing marriage on my cute five-year-old not that I don't want someone to blame, I do, but I think it's more complicated than that. I explain how my career is going great. 
I tell the mediator I have a busy speaking schedule and a six-figure contract for my next book. I even talk about my blog and the estimated 450,000 page views a month, even though you can trust me on this. Our divorce mediator from Middleton, Wisconsin, does not read blogs. At this point, I think my husband is going to tell the mediator about how he gave up his career for the kids and me, and he's totally disappointed. But he says, instead, he says to me, a lot of people I talk with say, I'm being abused by you. I'm shocked. It's a big allegation. But I say, well, a lot of people I talk with think I should get rid of you. That's as bad as it gets right there. Because the mediator interjects and says that if you want to try to stay together for the kids, it's worth it. He says the research shows divorce is very hard on kids, and especially kids under five. But he adds, you won't be able to hold things together just to parent the kids. You will need some kind of love for each other. I say quickly that I have that. It's easy for me to remember how much fun I had with my husband before we had kids. It's easy for me to remember that every time I look but don't really look for men to have an affair with, I find myself looking at someone who's like my husband. I still love him. My husband is not so quick to say he still loves me. So all I can do is think while he thinks. I think about the research about how a career does not make people happy. When you're in love, someone asks you how you are, you say, I'm so happy, even if you're unemployed. When your career is going well and your marriage isn't, when someone asks you how you are, you pause and say, well, my career's going great. The mediator starts talking about how the next step will be a contract to follow rules of engagement. You have to start being nice to each other, says the mediator. Right now, that seems almost impossible. We have to wait, though. My husband is deciding if he has any love for me. He asks the mediator, how do I know if it's love? The mediator says, well, if you care about her life, for right now, that's enough. Finally, my husband says to me, I'm so sorry that life is not better for you when your career is going so well. You've worked so hard for this. The mediator nods, next meeting, we will move on to rules of engagement. What's remarkable about this blog really is how unremarkable it is. While the details differ, the emotional landscape of this story could belong to many of us. And we all know marriages are in trouble in our society. A significant smaller portion of the population is getting married, and they're getting married later. The divorce rate has remained high for 40 years, and study after study reveals that fewer and fewer Married couples report on surveys being very happy in their marriage. Hence, a new series. We're going to talk about the thing that's most important to us. Relationships is the thing that's most important to us. It's what we were made for. Whether we recognize it or not, it is the thing that is most important to us. It's, it's what we were designed for. Remember the creation story? Some of you know that. Genesis 1 tells us about creation. God just starts creating stuff because he's just so fantastic. And he creates light and dark. It's good, he says. Day two, creates a bunch of stuff. Good. Day three, good stuff. Day four, that's good. Day five, way to go, God. Day six, awesome, fantastic. The whole thing is good. There's one thing not good. Man's aloneness. Because we were created for connection. So we're going to talk about 
our most important connections over the next four weeks, and we're going to try to be really honest. When we cover singleness, by the way, we're going to talk about some uh, extracurricular, awkward stuff. I think you're going to want to be here so you can pray for your single friends. I hope you're not going to want to be here so you can remember when you were single, if you're married. Uh, But it will be for all of us. There are going to be principles in this for all of us across all relationships. I want to give you some ground rules before you jump into the series. First of all, in these conversations, I want you to try to listen for yourself. I had someone tell me on the, after the 9 o'clock service, walking out, wow, I wish my son-in-law had been here to hear that. Even if you're single, listen for yourself when we talk about marriage. Many of the principles will have application in a variety of relationships. And you never know what your future holds. Even if you're single again, you don't know. Now, if you have no kids, you can listen again for your childhood friends when we talk about parenting because many of the principles are going to overlap. Many of you will and should become spiritual parents. Second ground rule, do not compare yourself or your spouse or your kids to any other relationships or any other spouse or any other kids. You're going to hear a few examples and stories over these four weeks Do not compare. The stories are meant to inspire or to inform or to instruct. If you use them as a basis of comparison, they will create either discouragement or false encouragement, and neither of those will be helpful to you. Thirdly, use what you can. All of what we say here will be true, and all of it can work, but some of you are in situations, and I'm thinking in particular of some of our marriages, Some of you are in situations that require a different kind of approach than a series of lessons in a group setting like this can provide. So honestly, use what you can now and pray for the time when more of it can be put to use later. Okay, so we're ready for key one. We're going to get through at least two keys today and maybe three. We'll see how much time we have. We will try to cover five in all this week and next week. Uh, One more little introductory remark. Almost always here at Gateway on Sunday morning, and if you're new to us, by the way, thanks for coming. We're genuinely honored that you are checking us out. If today is your first Sunday, welcome. Where were you last week? It was Easter. Anyway, almost every Sunday here at Gateway, we take one passage from the Bible and we break it apart. And we try to understand it and apply it to our lives because we believe that the Bible is extraordinary and it's unique. It's God's Word inspired, laid out for us. So we want to hear what he has to say, not what Ed has to say. So we take a Bible passage, even if we're talking about a theme, we'll take a passage and work through that passage. This morning and the next three weeks is going to be an exception to that. This is going to be more like a seminar So we're going to make some big picture points. We'll reference some Bible verses. So that means you put your hat on this morning, and I'm giving you more than permission, I'm telling you to. Put your hat on this morning. Mm, Is that accurate or not? You need to be especially careful when we're not diving strictly into God's Word, if that makes sense. All right, enough. Let's get to key one. If you're the kind of person who keeps score at home, uh, there should be a sermon card in your program, and you can fill in the blanks. Also, if you need these later, you can find these keys on mygateway.life. So if you go to mygateway.life, it will list the keys that we're going over this morning and next week, by the way. Key number one, if you're going to have the kind of marriage for which you long and for which you were designed, you've got to keep your purpose before you. You've got to keep your purpose before you. 
I like the way psychologist Larry Crabb put it. Our highest purpose as husbands or wives is to be an instrument for promoting our partner's spiritual and personal welfare. Our highest purpose as husbands or wives is to be an instrument for promoting our partner's spiritual and personal welfare. The Bible agrees. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, and we're going to talk about this passage in more detail next week. We're going to look at some of the nuances and the differences in this passage. Some of you know this passage. In this passage, the Apostle Paul tells wives to serve their husbands, husbands to love their wives. Why? We'll talk about next week about what's up with that. But of course, in all relationships, we're supposed to love and serve. When he's talking to husbands in particular, he says, love your wives. And then he gives some of the how, but the purpose toward which that love points. And this is applicable to all of us, husbands, wives, friends, parents, everything, in all relationships, these purpose statements, but especially in the context of marriage. So listen to how he talks about our purpose in marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her super happy and meet her financial needs. No, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He's using another illustration now. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for it, personal care. There's spiritual promotion, there's personal promotion, their body, just as Christ does the church. To make her holy, to present her to himself, spiritual promotion. To feed her and to care for her, personal promotion. Let's put it another way. Our highest purpose in marriage is to encourage our spouse to be what God designed them to be. The other day, I was thinking about a friend from Gateway that got married a few years ago, and Tim Eagle, the elder whose daughter got married yesterday, He and I were having a conversation with this guy in the waning hours of his singleness, during which Tim asked a typical Tim question. He said, what's freaking you out most about the whole marriage deal? And this guy said that he was concerned about the adjustments he would have to make in his schedule as he learned how to consider someone else. At the time when I heard this, I thought this was pretty wise because it took me years to grab this concept. I was really proud of myself when I began to remember to tell Diane about things in advance of them actually happening to her. I was proud of myself for learning to consider Diane. But listen, considering Diane is a long ways from promoting her. It's certainly a step in the right direction, but it's not nearly far enough. I don't just have to consider Diane. I have to promote her personally. This is sometimes hard work, but it's work that I am called to do. I had a couple in my office some time ago. She had wanted, early in their marriage, she had wanted to quit work and raise the kids. He didn't think they could afford it. Then years later, as the children entered teenage years, every disturbance they had from the teenage years, she blamed it on him for that decision. I don't know if it would have made any difference. But I know that she felt she was made to raise kids. She felt like she was working against her design. I don't know what the right answer was in that situation, I promise you. On the one hand, it's clearly necessary to consider finances as a data point in family decisions. On the other hand, it's not the only data point, and it's almost never the most important data point. Plus, it's certainly not an act of promoting the other party to hold something against them over the course of years. I want you to think for a minute about your ideal picture. 
We all have one of your spouse or of a spouse or of marriage, the, the kind of marriage you want. It may not be clearly articulated. For some of you, it is. But even those of you who have been at this a long time, and Diane and I have been at this a long time, there's still a Cinderella or a Prince Charming in all of us. So, so think about your ideal picture. So for many of us, this ideal gets in the way of personally promoting our spouse. Our spouses can and often are diminished under the weight of being compared to our ideal picture of what they should be. I can't build a picture of my marriage or the marriage that should be or the spouse as he should be or she should be and then hold that picture before me. Instead, I've got to keep my purpose before me, which is to promote Diane's personal welfare. And perhaps more importantly, I've got to promote Diane spiritually. When does she feel close to God? When does she feel truly alive? How can I help her get there? What has God designed Diane to be and to do, and how can I help her realize that? And that's still an ongoing battle for me. Do you remember how God put it? He said, my purpose is to make her holy and to present her to himself without stain or wrinkle. And what I often do when I see stains and wrinkles, I get frustrated with her stains and wrinkles and blemishes. That's why I've been called to her. That word holy, when it's used in the New Testament, it means set apart for God's special purposes, set apart for God's special uses. It, it means pure, but that's the secondary meaning. The primary meaning of that word holy is special, extraordinary, unique. We are set apart for God's purposes and as spouses and, and with one another. We need to encourage that in one another. By the way, this, this same purpose applies to our friendships. We have to learn to be for one another, promoting not ourselves, but the other person. So I've asked Dean and Althea Salami if they would join us on the stage. I've known Dean and Althea for a really long time. Let's see. We'll start with you, Dean. So promoting Althea personally, spiritually, what does that look like for you? It is making sure I understand how she ticks and loving her accordingly. It's especially important for us now because that first year of marriage was so very awful. The first year of marriage was first awful? The first year of marriage was, yes, was very awful. What does he mean, Althea? The first year of marriage was awful. It means that we were not communicating like we should. It means that we were talking at each other or to each other and not with each other. And we had to learn how to do that. So what we did and what was born out of this was something that we call a family forum where... Um, oh, wow, this is awesome. Before you tell them about the family forum, what did that look like? Was, was there a lot of anger or just a lot of hurt or a lot of... What was going on? That, that Anger from me hurt for her. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. And also, I'm very blunt, so I'll get straight to the point. And that's not conducive to relationships and good communication. We have to learn how to talk with each other and get to the heart of the problem. Okay, so it led to family forum. And, and yes. what is that? We have two children, and we have a forum with them. And also, we have one with ourselves where we just come every three months or so, and we'll say, okay... Let's talk about all the issues that are going on with us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we just lay it all out on the line, and nobody has to feel conflicted or anything. We just speak the truth and speak it ever in that family forum. Huh. Okay. So you keep clean accounts, which is a really good thing. Yes. 
Dean, what else does it look like for you promoting Althea? How do you do that? Yeah, so for me, because I had come to know the Lord shortly, about a couple of years, three years before we had gotten married, so I had learned, it was very, where we, where we went to church, it was heavy emphasis on the Bible. So the Bible's always been a centerpiece of our relationship, but I always was thinking, all right, how does this actually work in real life? And so as I learned to be a student of Althea, I started to see things that I needed to be able to move to. That's a beautiful phrase right there. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a student of Althea. That's, go ahead. That's awesome. So because of our schedule in this last year, because I'm going to school, so one of the things I started to really dial in on was getting up with her in the morning and preparing her lunch and breakfast for she to carry. So we have that first 30 to 40 minutes where it's just us. We're talking. I'm preparing her some stuff. If I know that there's something going on at work, I'll pray for her before she heads out the door. What else, Althea, and speak for him. So how do you experience Dean promoting you? Are there other ways that you see that he promotes you? Well, besides the fact that he loves and he prays for me all the time, he has allowed me the chance. Does he pray with you? Yes. Okay. Yes, he prays with me and he prays for me. So in those morning times, do you all pray? Like when he's making you lunch and being a perfect husband, does, <laughs> does, does he pray for if, if, there's a, if there's a situation going on, yes, he'll okay. stop whatever he's doing and he'll pray for me right there. Okay. All right. What else? He truly, Ed, he, he, promote, he promotes my strengths and he helps to show up my weaknesses. So I have been very shy for a long time and um, I go to the gym a lot and I've been somehow drawn to some of these ladies and he uh, allows me the time to be with them and we've gotten some great relationships out of that. I've been praying for these ladies, which is not something that I would see myself doing forming a relationship outside like and that's that. really good y'all talked to me about that so, yesterday and you talked this morning you create space for her to go to the gym three or four times a week and have for years and she has a ministry there now. yes yes okay dean <laughs> how does althea promote you so i have got a very strong sense of where i'm supposed to be going right and the things that i need to do both as a husband as a father those types of things but what she has always done has been very, very affirming. So it's one thing to know where you're going, but it's another thing when your wife picks up on it, comments on it. It's pretty cool. And says, like that, Dean, or you did that well, or? Yes, I tell him that all the time. And uh, yesterday was a great example. We have two children. I mentioned that already. Sorry. And he, in talking with Ali yesterday, he was able to draw on an experience that she had when she was in middle school. She made a wise decision. You said at the 9 o'clock this morning, Althea, this, I thought this was beautiful. You said, Dean is really good at casting a vision. Yes, he is. And so you were using this as an example of that. Yes. What, yes, so you... he's very good at casting a vision and helping us see where it's going to go or where we should go. <laughs> so when she was in middle school, there was something that happened, and she made a right decision, and he was able to use that to help her with the situation we were talking about yesterday and to cast a vision for her for when she goes away to college next year and for the rest of her life. Awesome. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Althea. Let's give them a hand. As we keep our purpose before us, we also have to fight off the tendency to work toward false purposes. Uh, just some examples. These may be primary examples, but they're not exclusive. Some of us really do consider it our primary purpose to provide for our spouse. Many of us are driven by the aim to please our partner, to make them happy. 
Some of us are driven by the desire to be happy ourselves. And this, this really is our primary purpose. So think for a second. What is your false purpose in relationships? I mean, I mean that as a rhetorical question. I don't intend for anyone to raise their hand and say, oh, I don't want to be happy. I don't really care about him. But it's a significant question that we should all wrestle with. If you're young and single and never been married, that's an important thing to have wrestled with. And for those of us who are way down the track, it is still important for us to be mindful of our false purposes. Pursuing these purposes will not build the kind of marriage we long for. Remember, as Larry Crabb put it, our highest purpose as husbands or wives is to be an instrument for promoting our partner's spiritual and personal welfare. Okay, key number two, be realistic about your happiness. Some of you will remember the TV show, Everybody Loves Raymond. In that show, 15 years into her marriage, TV show wife Deborah has an abusive, intrusive mother-in-law, an emotionally abusive father-in-law, and an emotionally stunted husband who seems unable to create appropriate boundaries for their family, pretty much the same kind of thing she started with on day one. And while some of the details are different, this is not too dissimilar from what many of us have. We do not have what we hoped for. And yet, there is a lot of joy for Deborah, and she knows it. Periodically, throughout the show, there are tender moments when she would be reminded that in the day-to-day, she sometimes overlooks the joy, but it's there. And in those moments, TV show Deborah reminds us not to burden our relationship with an unrealistic picture of what marriage will be or should be. Let's be realistic about our expectations. So let's do some real quick work. I want you to turn into circles of four, five, or six. Grouplatize. Some of you are going to turn your chairs around. Circles of four, five, or six. And I want you to answer two questions. What was your favorite TV or movie marriage? And who exercised the most influence over your view of marriage? So, what was your favorite TV or movie marriage? And who exercised the most influence over your view of marriage? You've got 15 seconds to think. All right, now turn your chairs around. You know, in the comments that Dean and Althea made, Althea said at one point early in their marriage, in that first year of marriage, they were talking at one another. They weren't talking with one another. They weren't communicating. And and communication is critical, of course. I, I know because surveys too numerous to name will tell us that if we surveyed you and asked you the most important features of marriage, you would come up with a really good list. And number one on your list would be communication for two-thirds of you. Number one would be communication, and it's, it's, it's critically important. We're not talking about communication specifically because I think we need to go underneath that. It's really important what we're communicating out of and what we're communicating. That's why it is so critically important for us to keep our purpose before us and to be realistic about our expectations. So let's think of these two chairs right here as Ed and Diane. And they come together in marriage. They decide that they're going to tie the knot. Here's the thing. If we burden that knot, this didn't work at 9 o'clock, so let's see. If we burden that knot with too many expectations, well, you get it. You know what's going to happen. You put too many false expectations, this relationship, this knot, this string, this marriage can't bear the burden. 
of those expectations. Diane and I have an exercise we use in premarital counseling when we've done, Diane helps me do premarital counseling over the years, and we ask couples to make a list of 20 expectations. It's anything. I expect he's going to cut the grass. I expect she's going to, whatever. There's a list of 20 expectations, and then we make them switch. Sheets. And with those, that list of expectations, we ask the spouse-to-be to write C, S, or N. C means cinch. No problem. Got that one. S means that's going to be some work. That's a sweat. And N means no way. I'm not doing that. We learned this exercise from a premarital training we went to, and we found it in a, a workbook that we sometimes use. So why this exercise? Because marriage counselors know that unrealistic or unrealizable expectations will slowly kill a marriage. And they know that unrealized or unknown expectations can severely damage a marriage. They create guilt and dissatisfaction. In a similar way, we have couples work through a checklist and ask them to answer how they think they'll respond if these things happen in their marriage. And this is the two pages of stuff. Miscarriage, death of a child, major financial crisis, someone loses a job, personal illness, a child doesn't turn out the way you wanted. Welcome to the world. Discovering that you cannot have children at all. In-law hostility. Why? Because we're simply not in control of many of the circumstances in our lives. We have to be prepared not to base our happiness on those circumstances turning out the way we expected. These circumstances often damage marriages, sometimes severely because we were not at all prepared for them. Now, in a sense... We cannot be fully prepared for these things, of course, but we can know, and we can set our expectation meter to be aware that some of these things may very well happen in our lives. God is in control. We are not. We need to be realistic about our happiness, and this is true for those of you who've been at this for 35 years. The same still applies. Let's step aside for a second from the topic of marriage there's only one connection that can stand up under the weight of your complete trust, the full demand of your expectations, and your marriage is not it. The only absolutely reliable connection is the one we make with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. I'm not saying that because God meets all of our expectations, but he always meets our need. And if we allow it, he will reshape our expectations so that they are fully in line with what is best for us. As a declaration of faith, at one point, the psalmist says this in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots. Some put their hope, some put their expectations onto an instrument of warfare. And by the way, a, a huge technological advance in the time of this psalm. Some trust in horses. It's a good getaway. It's a good way to communicate, to get from town to town. But we trust. We put our expectations in the name of the Lord our God. And nothing else can support the weight of our expectations. We saw this principle at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. Those of you who are here for us for our last series of conversations, we were talking about spiritual growth, and you got to end into that letter of Philippians. And Paul said this, Look, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've, I've been in really, really different kinds of circumstances, some good ones and some really bad ones. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all of that through him who gives me strength. Notice he had to learn to be content. And notice 
that it came through his connection with God based on what Jesus Christ had done. Now look, this is not a recipe for happiness. There is no such recipe. The world is not designed to make us perfectly happy. And realizing this, by the way, is part of the work we have to do in being realistic about our expectations. Well, aren't you just a bundle of joy and good news, Ed? Okay, to end this key, let me give you several comments about happiness in general and some about particularly happiness in marriage. Listen to this. I'm going to put some stats up on the screen for you. At any given time, more than 25% of Americans are at least mildly depressed. That statistic is more than 15 years old. It's larger now. 37% of the people on Forbes' list of the wealthiest Americans are less happy than the average American. Happiness is elusive, and money doesn't bring it. Look at this. What do you think are the happiest countries in the world? Right? A, B, C, D, or E? I mean, Switzerland, they, they seem like really happy people. Denmark, hate their accent, but, you know, they could really happy, pretty wealthy. Okay, look at this next list. This is a list of the happiest countries in the world in order, the top five. Clearly, happiness is not a function of financial security. This is very compelling. So this is the, if you miss everything, don't miss this part of the message today. I want you to look at the factors that are most important in predicting marital happiness. So if a therapist talks to you and surveys you for these factors, which one of these do you think is most predictive of your marital happiness? Again, for those of you who've been at this more than 20 years, I want you to pay attention to this as well. Compatibility. Relationship with the in-laws, that's always dicey. The level of individual happiness before marriage is the most predictive of whether or not you'll be happy in marriage. I'm not saying that. Voluminous amounts of research tell us that. That's almost exactly the same kind of thing. In fact, it is exactly the same kind of thing that the Bible would tell us. And some of you have been at this for 24 years, and you've settled into a, eh, it's okay, secretly, mostly her fault, not getting the fact that you brought that into the relationship. How about some comments about marriage in particular? I'm going to give you four. Number one, happiness is not a byproduct of marriage. You have to bring happiness to your marriage before you get it from your marriage. Comment number two, happiness in some part is a choice. Of course, there are dispositional aspects. Some of you are just sunnier than others of us. There are situational components to happiness. But in some part, happiness is a choice. There are several passages of Scripture I wish we had time to go over this morning, but I want you to see one. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it. Make a decision. Decide to be joyful in the worst kind of circumstances. Decide joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, because you know that those really difficult circumstances are going to produce something strong in you. They're going to build your character. They're going to build perseverance. Happiness, in some part, is a choice. Third, happiness in marriage is cyclical and seasonal. So let's just own that. I want you to see this happiness graph based on Surveys of tons of marriages. 
So what we learn here is, teenagers, you are a bummer, basically. <laughs> you basically kill happiness in all of its forms. <laughs> right? And look, our marriages don't have to be determined by this. Your marriage can be much happier than this. I want to tell you honestly, I get a lot of things wrong, but I just got really blessed with this one, and my marriage is happier than this, and it always has been, because I'm married to somebody extraordinary. Those of you who don't know Diane, you need to. She's awesome, and she's not even here, so I'm not getting brownie points for this. But there are seasons of marriage. This is why, look at that low point, this is why the seven-year to 12-year period is ripe for divorce. And it often happens because I'm really unhappy. And I'm unhappy because I have overburdened the knot that I tied. And I'm beginning to give way. I get that. I'm smart enough to know that I'm giving way. So something's got to change. And you're changing the thing that is not going to make any difference to your happiness. Fourth, often happiness is a byproduct of nurturing a deep connection with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that's always the only source of ultimate happiness. But I say often because our connection to God doesn't make us super happy all the time. The planet doesn't allow that. But this is the way to have it. And often it comes as a byproduct of that connection. That's why we made talking about our purpose such a big deal. Because as I promote Diane, I got a way better chance of making her happy than I do if I go for happiness directly. Because I'm not good at making that happen. Keep your purpose before you and be realistic about your happiness. Okay, once again, we're going to run out of time. I'm going to give you the third one. We'll go over it next week. But I want to end with, uh, I want to read an article that first appeared in the New York Times a number of years ago. And I just want you to hear along exactly this line, this business of being realistic about your expectations. I want you to hear someone dive into the middle of the deep end of that and work their way through it with remarkable emotional and spiritual health. Bear with me and listen to this if you would. I don't love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did. His words came at me like a speeding fist, like a sucker punch. Yet somehow in that moment, I was able to duck. And once I recovered and composed myself, I managed to say, I don't buy it. Because I didn't. He drew back in surprise. Apparently, he expected me to burst into tears, to rage at him, to threaten him with a custody battle, or beg him to change his mind. So he turned mean. I don't like what you've become. Gut-wrenching pause. How could he say such a thing? That's when I really wanted to fight, to rage, to cry, but I didn't. Instead, a shroud of calm enveloped me, and I repeated those words, I don't buy it. You see, I'd recently committed to a non-negotiable understanding with myself. I had committed to, quote, end the suffering, end quote. I finally managed to exile the voices in my head that told me my personal happiness was only as good as my outward success rooted in things that were often outside of my control. I'd seen the insanity of that equation and decided to take responsibility for my own happiness, and I mean all of it. 
My husband hadn't yet come to this understanding with himself. He had enjoyed many years of hard work and its rewards and had supported our family, all four of us, all along and very well. But his new endeavor hadn't been going so well and his ability to be the breadwinner was in rapid decline. He'd been miserable about this, felt useless, was losing himself emotionally and letting himself go physically. And now he wanted out of our marriage to be done with our family. But I wasn't buying it. I said, it's not age appropriate to expect children to be concerned with their parents' happiness. Not unless you want to create codependents who will spend their lives in bad relationships and therapy. There are times in every relationship when the parties involved need to break. What can we do to give you the distance you need without hurting the family? <laughs> what? And he said, huh? Go trekking in Nepal, build a yurt in the back meadow, turn the garage studio into the man cave, get that drum set you've always wanted, anything but hurting the children and me with the reckless move like the one you're talking about. Then I repeated my line, what can I, I do, what can we do to give you the distance you need without hurting the family? And he said, huh? How can we have a responsible distance? I don't want distance, he said, I want out. My mind raced. Was, was it another woman? Was, was it drugs? Un, unconscionable secrets. But I stopped myself. I would not suffer. I remained stoic. I could see pain in his eyes. Pain I recognized. Oh, oh I see what you're doing. He said, you're, you're going to make me go into therapy. You're not, you're not going to let me move out. You're going to use the kids against me. I never said that. I just asked, what can we do to give you the distance you need? Stop saying that. But he didn't move out. Instead, he spent the summer being radically unreliable. He stopped coming home at his usual 6 o'clock. He would stay out late and not call. He blew off our entire 4th of July, the parade, the barbecue, the fireworks, to go to someone else's party. When he was at home, he was distant. He wouldn't look me in the eye. He didn't even wish me happy birthday. But I didn't play into it. I walked my line. I told the kids... Daddy's having a hard time, as adults often do, but we're a family no matter what. I was not going to suffer, and neither were they. My trusted friends were irate with my behavior. How can you just stand by and accept this? Kick him out, get a lawyer. I walked my line with them too. This man was hurting, yet his problem wasn't mine to solve. In fact, I needed to get out of the way so he could solve it. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm a pushover, I'm weak and scared and, and, and would put up with anything to keep the family together. You're thinking I'm probably one of those women who would endure physical abuse. But I can assure you I'm not. I load 1,500-pound horses into trailers and gallop through the high country of Montana all summer. I went through Pitocin-induced natural childbirth and a cesarean section without follow-up drugs. I'm handy with a chainsaw. I simply had come to the understanding that I was not at the root of my husband's problem. He was. If he could turn his problem into a marital fight, he could make it about us. And I needed to get out of the way so that that wouldn't happen. Privately, I decided to give him time. Six months. Eight months. I had good days and I had bad days. On the good days, I took the high road. I ignored his lashing out, his merciless jabs. On the bad days, I would fester in the August sun while the kids ran through sprinklers, raging at him in my mind, but I never wavered. 
although it may sound ridiculous to say, don't take it personally, when your husband tells you he no longer loves you, sometimes that's exactly what you have to do, not take it personally. Instead of issuing ultimatums, yelling, crying, or begging, I presented him with options. I created a summer of fun for our family and welcomed him to share in it or not. It was up to him. If he chose not to come along, we would miss him, but we would be just fine, thank you very much, and we were. And yeah, you can bet I wanted to sit him down and persuade him to stay, to love me, to fight for what we've created. You can bet I wanted to, but I didn't. I barbecued, made lemonade, set the table for four, loved him from afar. And one day, there he was, home from work early, mowing the lawn. A man doesn't mow his lawn if he's going to leave it. Not this man. Then he fixed a door that had been broken for eight years. He made a comment about our front porch needing paint. Our front porch. He mentioned needing wood for next winter, the future. Little by little, he started talking about the future. It was Thanksgiving dinner that sealed it. My husband bowed his head humbly and said, I'm thankful for my family. He was back. And I saw what had been missing. Pride. He'd lost pride in himself. Maybe that's what happens when our egos take a hit in midlife and we realize we're not as young and golden as we once were. When life's knocked us around, our childhood myths, our false expectations, our grand illusions, our ideal picture, when they reveal themselves to be just that, the truth feels like the biggest sucker punch of them all. It's not a spouse or land or a job or money that brings us happiness. Those achievements, those relationships can enhance our happiness, yes. But happiness has to start from within. Relying on any other equation can be lethal. My husband had become lost in the myth, but he found his way out. We've since had the hard conversations. In fact, he encouraged me to write about our ordeal to help other couples who arrive at this juncture in life. People who feel scared and stuck, who believe their temporary feelings are permanent, who see an easy out and think they can escape. My husband tried to strike a deal, blame me for his pain, unload his feelings of personal disgrace onto me, but I ducked and I waited and it worked. Be realistic about your expectations. You cannot have the marriage that God longs for you to have unless you place your trust in Him and let Him take care of everything else. Okay, the final key, if you're keeping score at home and taking notes, is pray together. And we'll start with that next time. We'll talk about praying together next week because it's critical. Let's pray. Father, we've talked, and we're going to be talking for several weeks about keys in our relationships and things that are important in our relationship. And this morning, right now, we recognize there's only one key that matters, and that's connecting to you. And look, honestly, we barely understand that some of the time. Why? How? But this morning, right now, we acknowledge it. And on Thursday or Friday, when we're fried or we're unhappy or we're in a bad spot, Please, Lord Jesus, remember that this morning we remembered and we said yes and we acknowledge that we trust in the name of the Lord our God, not in horses or chariots. Remind us. Father, I want to pray for 
especially this morning, those of us who are married. I pray that you would protect what you have begun. Some of us lost the narrative. We forgot that you sovereignly brought us together. We forgot that this is about you and about promoting the other person. We forgot that, and this morning we remember. So protect us. And I also pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us. We need you. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you.